Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 13th. Today, why so many Americans still can't get tested for the coronavirus, and what a global pandemic means for the state of the environment. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Two very big words. On Friday afternoon, President Trump declared the coronavirus to be a national emergency. That allows him authority to use tens of billions of dollars allocated by Congress for disaster relief. And that could help with a big issue throughout the outbreak, the availability of coronavirus tests. We want to make sure that those who need a test can get a test very safely, quickly and conveniently. But we don't want people to take a test if if we feel that they shouldn't be doing it. For the last few weeks, the federal government has gotten a lot of criticism for how they've handled testing. Anybody right now and yesterday, anybody that needs a test gets a test. We, they're there. They have the test. And the tests are beautiful. Anybody that needs a test gets a test. That was President Trump at the CDC last week. Uh, we'll be expanding access to tests in the weeks ahead uh, to every American. And Vice President Pence a day later. But the truth is that many people who believe that they're infected with coronavirus have struggled to get access to tests. Hi, is this Amy? This is. Hi, uh, this is Martine. Amy Schauble works in public health in Milwaukee. And, and how are you feeling is what I should ask. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling okay at the moment. The nights are a bit more difficult in terms of breathing and just sore throat, congestion, and things like that. Monday night, I started not feeling well. Just like, oh, I don't feel too good, but not that big a deal. Remy Cueto is a family doctor and epidemiologist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Both Remy and Amy have had firsthand experience with how hard it can be to get a test. Very clearly, I had a viral infection of some sort and therefore would be contagious. So I I canceled my, my, my clinic, my patients, stayed home Tuesday and Wednesday and, and felt feverish and had shortness of breath, ache in the deep parts of my lungs. It's a very deep lung ache and a cough. So my boyfriend and I had been on vacation traveling in Malaga, which is southern Spain and then northern Africa. On Monday the 2nd, I was on a seven-hour trans-Mediterranean ferry, continued on with our vacation, we're doing well. And then on Thursday the 5th, I started to feel ill on my flight back to the States. 
and then Saturday and Sunday increasingly ill. I've kind of been jokingly calling this bronchitis plus menopause because (laughs) um, I'm having such difficulty breathing, so much coughing. And it's winter in Wisconsin, but I have three windows open because I'm sweating so much. Oh, my gosh. So from the very beginning, were you thinking this could be coronavirus or... At the beginning, were you confident that it was something less serious and then you started to get more nervous? So I knew I was sick and I was, you know, had those t- difficult nights when you're feverish and you can't sleep well, that that kind of thing, you know, kind of as if it were the flu. But it did feel differently than the flu to me. I've had the flu five or six times in my life. I don't know how many times, but enough to remember what it typically feels like. And as a family doctor, I've seen the flu many times. So my clinical judgment, my clinical impression was this is not like influenza. And that's when I decided maybe I should get tested to rule out influenza, because if it's not influenza, then it could be COVID-19. Initially, when I started to feel ill on the flight back to the States, you know, I assumed that it was just a run-of-the-mill upper respiratory infection. You know, there's loads of things going around Wisconsin, especially at this time of year, and then also with traveling. It really wasn't until Saturday, Sunday, so about the 7th and the 8th, that I started to feel increasingly ill. And then on Monday that we really started to talk about that trans-Mediterranean ferry and some of the folks not feeling well on that, that it occurred to me that it could potentially be coronavirus. So I went, saw my doctor. She did the nasal swab, which tests 15 common respiratory viruses. It took four hours to get the results. And so I learned at four o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday that I tested negative for all the common respiratory viruses. And it was a policy of our hospital not to test for the novel coronavirus because their policy was, I'm not sick enough to be hospitalized, which is true. I was not sick enough to be hospitalized. And at that time, were you like, what did you think about that policy? Well, I didn't agree with that policy because I didn't need to be tested. I knew that didn't make any difference to me for my care, whether I got tested or not. But I'm a physician seeing patients and I have not traveled lately. And so I was sick. I knew that. And I had gotten it from the community. I knew that. (laughs) And so if it's not influenza and if it's COVID-19, we should know about it. And so I, I did not agree with that policy. But I thought I should report this to the health department. We need to know. Mm -hmm. So I pulled myself out of bed, went to the county health department. The nurse there was very responsive. She met me outside. We talked. She agreed that I could have it. So she contacted the state, North Carolina State Health Department, then and there with her cell phone. And she reached an epidemiology nurse there, infectious disease nurse, who then asked me the questions about have I traveled? Do I have any known contacts, which I did not? And am I sick enough to be hospitalized? And no, none, none of those three. And she said, we can't test you. That's our policy, mainly because I had not come in contact with a known case and confirmed. But we weren't testing at the time. This was a week ago, Thursday. And I don't know. I mean, there was one case in North Carolina, confirmed case, and uh, there weren't a whole lot of tests being done. So, no, I did not have a confirmed case. But that was my point for being there is to say, well, if it's out there in the community, now is the time to know. Monday morning, I still was not feeling better. So on the 9th, I did go into urgent care. The doctor who I saw was great. He wanted to test for influenza 
and rule that out, which he did and was pretty motivated to get a coronavirus test right away. So he came back into the room and explained that it would probably be about 30 or 40 minutes that he needed to try to get in touch with local, state, or federal health departments in order to get a hold of a test. So there were not coronavirus tests that were just there at the urgent care clinic that you were at? Correct. And there was nowhere for him to send me to get one. And yeah, then again, about 30, 40 minutes, he came back in explaining that he would recommend I go to home quarantine because unfortunately he cannot get a hold of a test. My health actually declined quite a lot yesterday unexpectedly. So I ended up hospitalized briefly and I was tested at that point. Do you feel like our institutions were sufficiently prepared for what's happening right now? I don't think so. I I guess from more of a, a national perspective, was very frustrated that the president was making statements such as anyone who wants a test can get a test. I know that not to be true for my own situation and for friends in similar situations who are returning to the states. In terms of the federal government preparing folks, I, I just don't feel that that is happening. And I don't think that there's any consistency. It's really up to local officials to protect their own communities, if that makes sense. So now that you've finally been able to actually take a test, have you heard back yet or do you know for sure whether or not you have it? Um, I do not. So I'm hoping to receive test results on Friday. They said possibly Saturday, but this is a new process for them. I think that I may have been one of the first individuals that they had tested at this particular hospital. So there's quite a lot up in the air. There have been stories like this around the country. People who are sick, who say they have a legitimate reason to think that they may have the coronavirus, but who have waited a long time to get a test or haven't been able to get tested at all. And the reason for that has to do with how the coronavirus tests have been rolled out since January. The way that it works is the CDC works on developing the test. And then the CDC can do the test in-house in its own lab. That's great. But if it wants to distribute it for use elsewhere, that process actually has to get some input from the FDA, just like any other lab. Investigative reporter Nina Satija has been reporting on this question of what has gone wrong with the testing process. Okay, normally the CDC controls this process from the beginning. And there's a lot of reason for that. There's a lot of historical precedent because you don't just want any old company coming out and making a test and then everyone going and getting it and getting a bunch of false positives. That would be a huge disaster or getting a bunch of false negatives, right? There are reasons that we have a government and regulations in this country. So the CDC develops the test and then the FDA approves it. And it seems like things are going in the right direction. But when did problems start to happen? The problems really started to happen in early February. The CDC got approval from the FDA to send its tests to other public health labs across the country so they could start using it. Public health labs are, I like to kind of think of them as like mini CDCs of every state. These are not where most people are getting their flu test done. You know, you get your flu test when you go to your urgent care clinic and they send it out to Quest or LabCorp or maybe you get it in a hospital. The thinking was we're probably not going to have that many cases in the U.S. And so we can run the tests through them. And that way the government is sort of involved from the beginning if we think we have a positive. But very, very soon, those public health labs reported that they couldn't get it to work. 
And for weeks, for weeks, actually, most of them were not able to get it to work. That was really bad. That was a really big problem. And the CDC kept saying in between, well, we think it was a manufacturing issue. We're working it out. We don't want to send out a newly manufactured test that also has problems. Please give us some time. We need to work this out. Those state public health labs, as well as university labs and and clinical labs, started to get really nervous and desperate. And they said, look, you guys can't figure this out. You can't make your test work. We think we have a test that works. Please let us use it. We need to be testing people more. And we don't really know why the CDC and the FDA didn't heed those warnings and listen to that frustration in that period of weeks. And then what happens after that? So finally, at the end of February, the CDC and the FDA relented and they said, okay, if you want to use a different version of the test, you can use it. You're going to have to validate it with us. You're going to have to send us a lot of information. But for right now, if you can prove to us that it works, then we will let you use the test that you've developed in your own lab. But ultimately, it wasn't until the end of February that the CDC and FDA said, okay, fine. And around that same time, the CDC said, okay, for those public health labs that still can't get our test to work, we have a workaround. So we still don't really know what went wrong with the original CDC test, but they have not answered any more questions about what could have gone wrong. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today about FDA's efforts. We have deployed thousands of FDA career men and women to address this and to proactively look at aspects of diagnostics as well as the medical supply chain. So that was at the end of February that the FDA made this change and opened up the testing process. As I mentioned yesterday, we've seen in cooperation with CDC a significant expansion in the ability to perform those tests. But that was, what, two weeks ago? And now we're still in the situation where there doesn't seem to be enough tests distributed in enough places for everybody. So what's been going on since then? Since then, the issue now is what are people's ability to actually run these tests? So in again, in late February, the CDC said, OK, we have fixed our test kit issue. We have found a manufacturer that's going to make a ton of these in a very short period of time. You can get as many as you want. And there shouldn't be any issues. But at some point, someone can send you a million test kits. That doesn't mean you can run a million tests in a week, right? It's going to take a lot of time to ramp up that capacity. You need the equipment to use the kits. You need the lab workers to handle the samples. You need the swabs to take from the patients. Most places, you're not doing the test in the same place as your doctor's office is, right? And so someone has to take that swab, put it in a special bag, prepare it correctly, and mail it to the actual lab. All of that takes time, manpower, work. That's definitely going to be the challenge going forward is you can have the test kits that we were waiting for from the CDC or whoever else is providing them, but you have to actually be able to do the test. It's kind of like if I wanted to make a million cakes and someone sent me all the flour and all of the sugar and all of the butter that I needed, but it's just me. I got to make a million cakes. That's going to take some time. So then it seems like there were two problems here. First of all, it was that the CDC's test ended up being faulty, even though that was the only test that people were allowed to use for a while. And finally, once the FDA approved other labs to be able to use their own tests, that those labs were really scrambling to have the capacity to all of a sudden deal with this inundation of people who needed to be tested. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of public health professionals are hoping that we don't have a test run. We don't have everyone going in who thinks they have flu-like symptoms asking for the test. Because really, if you think you have coronavirus, 
hopefully you don't have one of those underlying conditions and you can just stay home and self-isolate and get better. And I think that's the other fear too, is everyone thinks the test is widely available. They're all going to go and want the test when a lot of them actually don't need it. So is that why we're hearing stories from people who say that they're being denied tests outright, even if their doctor or their their local health department has access to tests? I can't speak to those specific instances, but I certainly think the medical community still wants to be judicious about who they test. Everyone seemed to really think that the CDC guidelines originally for who was allowed to be tested, you know, you had to come from China or you had to come from one of these virus-stricken countries. You had to be hospitalized. Those kinds of guidelines, everyone thought those were too stringent. But I still do think that there will be some doctors who patients come in with flu-like symptoms and the doctor may decide, you know, we really don't think you need a COVID-19 test. And that may be correct. I think what certainly people are worried about is we're hearing from doctors who say, no, I really think this person does need a COVID-19 test and I'm still not able to get it. So the bottlenecks that have really delayed this process since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, what does that tell us about the level of preparation that the CDC had for something like this, where you would need to set up very quickly widespread testing? You know, the CDC has consistently said over the last few weeks that what they've been able to do is a success story. And of course, a lot of people have taken issue with that. On the other hand, the CDC has, in fact, moved incredibly fast. It is incredibly fast to come up with a diagnostic test for a new virus that no one's ever seen before seven days after the genomic sequence comes out. That is incredibly fast. It is typically incredibly fast to get test kits out, to get those ingredients out for the test they've developed to public health labs across the country just a few weeks later. And in some ways, it's incredibly fast to fix that test by February 26th and have it up and running, according to the CDC, in all 50 states. That's actually a very fast process, but it wasn't as fast as this virus. That's the problem. And I think what a lot of people are talking about now in terms of lessons learned is we need to be prepared for a virus that moves faster than what our process is. And I don't think the CDC was prepared for that. Nina Satija is an investigative reporter at The Post. And now, one more thing about an unexpected consequence of the coronavirus outbreak. I'm Brady Dennis, and I'm a national environmental reporter for The Washington Post. This rapidly spreading virus that we're all so aware of now has put a big dent in the greenhouse gas emissions. In the past month or so in China, you know, we've seen a drop of about 25% of their emissions. I hesitate to call it a good thing, and almost everyone we spoke with hesitated to call it a good thing. People are uh, being asked to stay at home, and they're not going out to gatherings. They're not going to work. They're not driving their cars. All year round, on an evening like this, Gochok Dome would be filled with baseball spectators or music fans. But today, you can only hear silence. Certain industries are not operating or certainly not operating on the scale that they're used to. I'm walking down the main street in Chinatown in Yokohama, which is close to where I live. Uh, 
It's not completely deserted, but it's a very different scene from the scene that you'd normally see here on, on a Wednesday night. Lots of restaurants, lots of neon lights, but very few people. Businesses aren't using as much energy. Last week, OPEC proposed cutting production by an additional 1.5 million barrels a day through the end of the year. It's really just this cascade effect that touches every part of the economy and every part of the world. And so it's, um, it's basically just a quieter world out there. That equals less carbon dioxide and less other greenhouse gases being emitted into the air. We looked back over more than 100 years to see when global emissions had fallen, right? Which is, the answer is almost never. It was these kind of monumental ground-shifting events. And, and the biggest one in recent memory would be the Great Recession back in 2008 and 2009, when the U.S. GDP fell more than 4%, and then we saw emissions decline. And when you go back even further in history, you see these other events, of course, the Great Depression being one that was the longest lasting, and we saw a 25% drop in emissions from about 1929 to 1932. 19 teens, you know, after World War I, there was the Spanish flu, this massive pandemic that killed, you know, tens of millions of people around the world. We see emissions shrink. When you have these big economic shocks, often countries will pour a lot of money, uh, understandably, uh, to get their economies going again. And you see a huge boom in uh, building and expansion and jobs. And, and with that comes uh, the demand for more oil and more materials. And, uh, you know, emissions then continue their upward climb, or at least they have always in the past. And already, even in coronavirus, you've seen this happening, that South Korea has already enacted a $10 billion stimulus in the wake of the virus spreading around that country Italy, obviously, is working on this. If there's one potential silver lining, it's that coming out of this terrible period of, of pandemic and um, people sick and dying and economies gridlocked, that maybe this time the stimulus go to things like transforming our energy system to a cleaner uh, way of energy. I don't know how realistic that is, especially when you're trying to ramp up an economy quickly again. But there is a hope that this time around, that some of that inevitable stimulus goes towards recovering in a different way than in the past. Brady Dennis is a national environmental reporter for The Post. You also heard foreign correspondents Minju Kim in South Korea and Simon Denier in Japan. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>